Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. I'm Julia Hobsbawm of Editorial Intelligence. Welcome to you, to Edelman, who are hosting uh, this evening's event uh, in association with Policy Review TV, who are filming. So if anyone doesn't want to be filmed or podcast, it's a bit late, but you could <laughs> sidle out now. Um, these events take place under the auspices of something called Thought for the Day, which we run for our networking membership club and our aim is to find subjects that are topical and to say that this feels topical is an understatement both because I don't think we've ever had such a quick response to an invitation and secondly because whether it's Kirsty Young talking about uh, the storming of the, of the 1970 Miss World this week it's the 40th anniversary I think of Sexual Politics' publication it was the 40th anniversary of uh, the first women's liberation organised movement. So it is timely and today in the FT there is a rather plaintive article saying that there's more haggling over the equality bill because, guess what, they can't decide how to implement equal pay. And I think it's fair to say that in this room we think it's very simple. We just don't pay men more than women, but they're still talking about it. So it is topical. Um, I'm joined on the panel by uh, Object, for whom this event is really being held. I was surprised to realise that I didn't know about the work of Object, and that when I heard about it, I was incredibly impressed and moved and a little bit shamed that I'd not got my act together before to support some of the things they support. And their work was highlighted by Janice Turner, who's in the audience. Janice Turner from The Times is one of the journalists who's been writing about the F word. People like Susie have been writing about the F word. Many people think about it, but there aren't that many people in public life who articulate it. Janice didn't want to be on the panel, but I phoned her in a panic yesterday and said, I'm looking for something to wear tonight, and I'm worrying about what to say. So here are the bullet points Janice gave to me, because actually they are infinitely better written than I could, and I think set the tone for what we want to talk about this evening, and then I will be quiet. So in the last 10 years, lap dancing clubs uh, sprang up on our high street. Soft porn went onto uh, the middle shelf. Uh, plastic surgery rates soared. Uh, food disorders soared in women. And so the body culture became centre stage, not in a good way. Why and how did feminism let this happen? What does that mean? today for our generations, for our kids, etc. Does porn culture matter? There's already been some comments this evening which I hope will uh, spring up, turn your mobiles off. Um, you know, does porn matter? Some people are more than happy to say porn is irrelevant to this debate. Um, to what extent has porn culture, if we do think it matters, uh, affected women's role in public life, limited it, when arguably there are many pointers that say women are doing very well. In fact, in the British Journalism Review, Jane Moore, one of the celebrated columnists, has said, you know, it's official, there's no glass ceiling, it's, it's over. Um, is feminism, therefore, something of a tainted brand? Or is it just a, a, an overbranded brand? Do we need to bring it back? Do we need to rehabilitate it? 
And finally, I think it's an important point. Do we want to do anything as a result of the discussions this evening, or do we just want to have a very nice modern-day consciousness-raising group discuss? So we're going to have five pithy minutes from our panel. I will introduce them briefly. If all goes according to plan and Diane comes in. She's here on cue. Hooray! You're about to be mic'd up. Um, I'm going to go through the speakers in the order in which they're going to speak. The first is Sasha Rakoff of Object. Uh, she founded Object in 2003. She says she has three children, two boys, feminist boys, I think you say they are, although it'd be interesting to know the definition of a feminist boy. Um, uh, and the third child is, of course, Object. Uh, she has dedicated her current life to the causes of Object, uh, admirably so. Uh, she dreams of a time when she and her children will no longer live in a society of porn as the norm, with all the accompanying attitudes that go hand in hand with it. Uh, Catelyn Moran, who I'm embarrassed to say I've been calling Caitlin cheerfully for a very long time, but it's Catelyn. Uh, <laughs> Catelyn is uh, very inspiring because she manages to be serious and funny and pithy and contemporary and incredibly cool at the same time. So we mind that a bit, but we also like it. Uh, she is, of course on the times and um, so she's sort of doubling up as Janice Turner this evening a little bit Catelyn and Jesus Janice Christ. no pressure two women at once. no okay. pressure um, <laughs> Diane will speak third Diane is one of the uh, most high profile and significant women in Parliament she was of course the first black woman MP elected to Parliament uh, quite how she manages to do battle with uh, or sort of do flirty battle with Michael Portillo every week, <laughs> if we're allowed to say such a thing. Um, but uh, she is uh, she is an inspiration. She's complicated and confrontational and has had her share of brickbats, but she is a very remarkable woman in Parliament, and we're very lucky to have you. And you're going to explain for us, I hope, the maze of legislation or the lack of it around women, amongst other things. And finally, Susie Orbach will speak to us. Uh, Susie is uh, one of the icons of the feminist movement. Fat is a feminist issue, has been luckily not ever gone out of fashion or out of print, and it has been updated. She's one of the founders of Anybody, the activist group. She is an activist, she's a psychoanalyst, she is a writer. And the paperback of her book, Bodies, in fact, is published, I think, even this week, so how timely is that? So... Thank you very much. You will then all be asked to contribute. And uh, Sasha, will you please tell us about this topic and what your take on it is? Thanks, Julia. Oh, it works. <laughs> um, I wanted to go right back to the title of today's discussion, Thought for the Day. A decade of porn. Is it time to put feminism back into public life? And I basically I can answer that in five seconds flat. The answer is yes, now. So that leaves me four minutes, 35 seconds, to talk about why and how. And what I love about the title of today's Thought for the Day is that the answers are in the title. Um, the title puts pornography and feminism in totally opposite camps, diametrically opposed to each other, which is exactly where they should be. We can maybe talk about that later to people who think porn is feminist and porn's great and lovely. Um, and also within the title of the discussion today is one of the answers as to how we can get feminism right back into public and political life. And ironically, perhaps, it's through pornography and it's through the porn and sex industry and their 
incessant, endless mainstreaming, which Julia did a great job of uh, reminding us all about. The fact that you can't really walk down the street without being sort of assaulted by a pair of billboard breasts or go down onto the tube or into our buses. The fact that there seems to be a lap dancing club at the corner of every high street. The fact that you walk into a supermarket to get your milk and you're kind of confronted by lads and mags falling off their shelves at you. And the fact that our children now, an entire generation, is being groomed on this, whether it's MTV or Playboy bunny cases being sold to nine-year-olds, or pole dancing kits being sold in the children's section of Sainsbury's. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. But the good thing about this, if you look hard, there is a silver lining, is that um, this sort of mainstreaming of the porn and sex industry is a fantastic way to motivate people. And we've seen huge amounts of motivation about the way this is being shoved in your faces everywhere you go. And that really comes back to why Object was set up. Because we were set up primarily, number one, to try and stop this mainstreaming, this normalising. And number two, to try and use it to raise awareness about the attitudes that are contained within the porn and sex industries. And how they are exactly the same attitudes, what a surprise, that underpin violence and discrimination against women. And don't forget, this is in a society where one in three women experience male violence. So it might sound incredibly idealistic, to put it politely, to think that you can use the might and power of the porn industry and somehow turn it against itself. But I think really the proof is that it's working. It's starting to work. And the fact is, in the last two months alone, we've seen two major changes to the law directly impinging on the sex industries themselves. Lap dancing, for instance, solely because of the work of Object, working with Fawcett Society, we've changed the way lap dancing clubs are licensed because they have been licensed up until now in the same way as cafes and karaoke bars, unbelievably. Prostitution, one of the most, one of the most hard things to even imagine tackling. We played a small part, admittedly, in changing the laws around prostitution. So finally the demand, the men who use prostitutes, will start to be penalised for what is actually the oldest oppression a horrendously abusive industry. And that's just the beginning. Um, I've been thrilled to see the government, the opposition, the London Mayor, either published or on the brink of publishing absolutely visionary strategies on how to end violence against women and girls. And every single one of them go on and on about the media, the attitudes it's perpetuating, the normalising of the porn and sex industry, sex object culture. So really, I think we're on this brink of a tidal wave, almost, in bringing feminism right back into public life. We might not actually be able to use the word feminism yet, that's the last great taboo, the F word, but what it stands for is going to be flowing, flooding back into public and political life. And groups like Object and every single woman's group who possibly can is going to make darn sure that that's a t that, that tidal wave does come and has a huge impact on all of us for the better. Thank you. Catelyn, you're really good. You can just talk and stuff. I had to write mine all day. Just do, do homework. <laughs> um, well, well, I started from the viewpoint that the the nightmare of any laid back, groovy, liberal type person is that by trying to be groovy and laid back on one subject, 
in this case not sexually objectifying women, you accidentally oppress someone on another subject, in this case dictating what some, some kind of rules on the expression of human sexuality. When we refer with disapproval or unhappiness to the pornographization of popular culture, it's also with the nagging fear that we are, in actual fact, somehow ultimately making things worse for women to be equal and free in some aspect of their lives. How dare you be down on lap dancing when women put themselves through university by working there? Um, how dare you call Jordan a vacuous harridan when she's become a feminist pioneer by controlling a multi-million pound self-merchandising empire? How dare you make any comment on any aspect of female appearance or behaviour because, after all, no one does that with men? Trying to explain that you're approaching these things from a fairly classic feminist viewpoint often makes things worse because, as you would expect from a movement which aims to take in the wants and needs of 52% of the population and the chattiest bit at that, <laughs> feminism has been re-examined and redefined so many times that we no longer really know what it is and what its viewpoint should be on pornography or lap dancing exercise classes or breast enlargement or the pussycat dolls or Brazilian waxing, or even, really, Claire's accessories. <laughs> well, in this matter, what ultimately aids us in defining what feminism should and should not be is to forget feminism for a minute and simply apply this question. Is this polite? I'm going to talk about Britain specifically, but are we, as a bunch of 60 million people on an island, playing nicely with each other right now? For instance, rooms where women stand on podiums and take their clothes off while clothed men sit there passing comments and rewarding their favourite naked and silent women with cash, that does seem a bit thoughtless and impolite. <laughs> Particularly given the context of the entirety of history up until, say, Working Girl starring Melanie Griffiths in 1986. <laughs> After all, history is pretty much 99% women being subjugated, disenfranchised, objectified and forced into marriage, so long as you put Queen Elizabeth I to one side, obviously. Um, once you remember the last 150,000 years of history, which obviously takes a minute, but do give it a go, um, it's obvious that lap dancing clubs are as incongruous in a modern society as minstrel shows or adverts for dew-beating sticks one pound. <laughs> of course, the big difference here is that if a white man suggested starting a cleaning agency that employed only black cleaners dressed up in plantation gear and being excessively cowed and deferential to their employers, the entire world would be up in arms. What are you playing at, they would shout. We're not going to bring back a light entertainment version of slavery. But what are strip clubs and lap dancing clubs if not light entertainment versions of the entire history of misogyny? I can't believe that girls saying, actually, I'm paying my university fees by stripping is seen as some kind of righteous, empowered, end-of-argument statement on the ultimate morality of these places. If women really are having to strip to get an education in a way that male teenage students are really noticeably not, then that is a gigantic political issue and not a reason to keep strip clubs going. Are we really saying that strip clubs are just wonderful charities that allow women, obviously pretty thin women anyway, presumably the fatter, plainer ones have to do whatever it is the male students are doing to get by, <laughs> to get degrees? I can't believe women supposedly in further education are that stupid. One doesn't want to be as blunt as to say, girls, get the fuck off the podium, you're letting us all down. But really, girls, get the fuck off the podium. <laughs> you're letting us all down. <laughs> Similarly, Katie Price, or any other woman playing that glamour, wag, OK magazine game. She's just doing what she wants, people say. She's strong. No, she's not strong. She's incredibly weak. At the tail end of 150,000 years of patriarchy, there's nothing strong about a woman with gigantic silicon tits and a face full of filler, who's into ponies and the colour pink and goes on about blowjobs. Um, she's scarcely a Mexican lesbian physicist wearing slacks in Alabama in 1932. <laughs> But what I find most intolerable is people who claim that she's a feminist role model simply because she's earned a lot of money. 
The reasoning being that men have all the power and money, but their weak side is sexy ladies. So if what it takes to become rich and powerful is to sex the men up, so be it. That's business. You might be on all fours with your ass hanging out on glamour calendars, but at least you're making rent on your enormous pink mansion. Well, there's a phrase for that kind of behaviour, and it is, to quote spin Dr Jamie in the thick of it, being a mimsy bastard queasling fuck. <laughs> Women who, in a sexist world, pander to sexism to make their fortune are Vichy France with tits. If you are 32 double G, waxed to within an inch of your life and faking orgasm, you are doing business with a decadent and corrupt regime. And calling that a feminist icon is like giving an arms dealer a Nobel Peace Prize. Mm. I've always held that to say I am not a feminist is basically to bend over and shout, kick my ass and please take my vote to the patriarchy. <laughs> I understand where the doubt has come from because feminism is still seen as a complex, angry thing where people, where neurotic women have 15-minute arguments with other neurotic women about the etymology of the phrase boyfriend genes. <laughs> but feminism is not complex. Feminism in the 21st century is simply working out what is polite, civilised and pleasant behaviour between each other. And as for the anger, well, I always like to remind myself that at any other point in history, Western women agitating for change would be at risk of imprisonment, social ostracization, or death. But these days, we can bring about pretty much whatever change we want by writing a series of slightly vexed letters whilst listening to Radio 4 and drinking a cup of tea. If we want this, however we want this future to be in this country, no one's going to have to die for it, and that's quite nice. <laughs> Diane, no pressure. No pressure. No pressure. I can't really top that. Let me just say, um, get this mic. Yeah. I th it's of course feminism needs to come back into public life because, I mean, I call myself a feminist in the classic sense, but one of the alarming things is how few women under 40 are prepared to call themselves feminists anymore. I think we've seen, since the height of organised feminism, a backlash against feminism, and I call in aid the sorts of attacks you see on Harriet Harman. Now, I don't agree with Harriet Harman about a lot of things, not least her unceasing devotion to Tony Blair. But Harriet's crime, as far as the mainstream media is concerned, and I've actually known Harriet for 30 years, is that in season and out season, out of season, Harriet has pursued quite a respectable, but nonetheless a feminist agenda. And that is a crime, and she gets extraordinary attacks from it, including from other women. Um, the other thing why we need to bring feminism back into public life is that I think feminism has been a victim of real changes in the culture. When I was a child, if you were a teenage boy and wanted to see porn, you had to go to a newsagent, hope he didn't know you or know your mum, get the magazine, hide it under your mattress. Now children as young as nine can have access to really horrific stuff on the internet. In my experience as a parent, your children know much more, you can put all those parental controls if you like, but your parents know much more about the internet than you do. And I saw a survey which showed that 90% of 8 to 16-year-olds have viewed porn online. And if we, if we were to give our young people any understanding of why that constant exposure to porn is a bad thing, we need to bring that feminist narrative back in, into our lives. Um, I wanted just to touch on a few issues that come up in a, the political sphere. And the first thing to say is I'm old enough 
and there are a few people in the audience who are kind of my age as well, to remember when feminine liberation and sexual liberation were one and the same thing. Some of us will remember those great photographs of Jermaine Greer naked and so on. It was all meant to be really iconic feminist stuff. But what has happened is that so-called sexual liberation is no longer the same as feminine liberation, I believe has become inimical. And one of the things that most horrifies me is the sexualization of children, the commodification of women, and the belief in ad agencies like the one we're sitting in that sex sells. So once upon a time, 30 years ago, it's quite shocking to use a naked woman. You couldn't even see her nipples, really, to sell something in the Times. Now they use women and sexuality to sell everything. Um, in, just to say a few things before my five minutes is up, I, I represent the London Borough of Hackney and the London Borough of Hackney in different areas has a big prostitution problem. I have no time for the glamorisation of prostitution that you see in Belle de Jour and in Pretty Women because the reality, even as we sit here, there are girls on the street in Hackney, in Chacolet and other parts and these are not glamorous blondes earning money to go through college. These are young girls some of them under the legal age, many of, them, um, <coughs> many of them taken by pimps, lured by pimps from children's home. Most of them are strung out on drugs. That is the reality of prostitution. And I think we need to hear more about the reality of the prostitute's life for 90% of prostitutes and less about the Belle de Jour end. The other thing I wanted to say is that I had a campaign over a number of years around, and actually it was instigated, funny enough, by a male news agent who came to me and complained about these lads mags. And um, I put down EDMs, and I went to see ministers, and I was amazed at the response from women. And they said, we don't object to porn as such, but we are really sick of going into newsagents, and you have these lad mags at child's eye view, and they have stuff on the front cover, which when I was a child you would only have seen in a, in a porn magazine on the top shelf. But what struck me is that, you know, there is a real wish and a yearning out there from ordinary women to see some sort of resistance to the pornification of the culture. And the final thing I wanted to say, oh yes, lap dancing. Again, we had a huge campaign in Hackney because we wanted to change a pub into a lap dancing thing. And again, people weren't necessarily being judgmental. They just didn't want lap dancing on the corner of their road where their children have to go back and forth to school and it becomes part of the, 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 the scene. So, finally, if we're talking about the law, it struck me, and it struck me when I was doing the campaign around lads mags, that it's illegal to sell children cigarettes, it's illegal to sell children alcohol, it's even illegal to sell them glue, but it's perfectly legal to sell them porn. And the reason why you can't make as much progress as we all like on these issues is we, some, some, of our, some of my male contemporaries have not lost this idea that somehow sexual liberation, social liberation and feminine liberation is all the same thing. They're not the same thing. We need to bring a feminist and artist back into public life and we need to say that this pornification of the culture and the sexualisation of children and this commodification of women has actually gone too far. Susie. Well, I'm, I'm sitting here. I wanted to go last because I wanted to figure out what I wanted to say. And I suppose what... I can't disagree with anything that's been said. And so the question for me is how the hell we deal with this? Because this, from 
my perspective from where I sit, this is so well integrated into girls' experience at this point that they themselves are enacting something to do with turning themselves into objects and pornographizing themselves. And now that we have high heels for babies, we have websites, hot or not, you know, where you can rate yourself and be rated. We have labiaplasties being marketed to Western girls very, very early on. Um, it's part of girls' experience and then the experience of femininity that this is the way to be. So it's not quite so easy for us to just simply critique it because it is part of what constitutes young women's and even women of my age's identity. And then the, the viciousness of the commercialization of the body industries, who are not small and who make a lot of money, and I won't go through the political economy of it now, but there is huge money being made. They have a rhetoric of empowerment, as Diana, as Diane said. Then the empowerment is, you need to transform yourself. This is where liberation is. You really are failing if you don't see this as a site of liberation. So the words of feminism have been stolen from the social to the individual. And as we've seen the reprivatization of life, which is what feminism tried to challenge, the post-Thatcherite deal was to reprivatize personal experience. So individual women are scrabbling to try and find a way of existing in the culture. So, that has all sorts of awful consequences, particularly around the erotic, because girls and women are very confused about sex and the erotic, and those two things don't seem to be the same anymore. Sex seems to be, I just picked up two magazines in the waiting room of Edelman. I mean, this would have been porn in my day. It's not porn now, it's, the, it's mainstream vogue. Um, and it's making girls and young women feel that sex is actually a visual experience. It isn't about the exploration of a body that actually belongs to them, that they bring to a, an, an experience in relation with another. It's about being able to reflect what they see. And if they can reflect that, then they can feel some measure that somehow they're fitting in because they've become the brand that's called sex. So, feminism for my last two minutes. I asked my daughter about this. She's 21. She thinks it's really important. Uh, this is after a career from the age of 11 to 14 of knowing every single blusher, lipstick, um, a mascara, whatever it is. I mean, really, she knew thousands and thousands of brands, colors, and names. So I was, I was very relieved that it only took seven years to bring her back. Um, <laughs> So it's interesting, but she, as a 21-year-old, doesn't feel that there is any place except, uh, there's no place for feminism, there's no way to talk about these things except in universities and women's studies programs and so on, or gender studies. So that really depressed me, and that's why I was so excited to come, come along tonight. Um, my group uh, that I've been involved in the Women's Therapy Centre Institute and the group Anybody is involved in trying to uh, bring together a campaign of all the activist groups next year, which I really hope Object will be part of, called um, Endangered Species, Saving Women's Bodies. 
And I think this might be a way in which we can collapse a whole, bring together a whole lot of agendas which are not about feeling bad, because I think what people have now taken about feminism is that it's somehow not interesting and we're all killjoys and we're boring and we don't like sex and we don't want to have a good time. But actually to be able to talk about the violence that is experienced by all of us that we do to ourselves because it's part of our experience. We bind our own feet and our own minds in very complex ways that we have to challenge at the same time as we challenge those industries that breed body hatred and breed a kind of level of hatred towards ourselves that is really very damaging. So I hope we'll be able to join campaigns and of course we have to put feminism back. We have to think of how the hell to reach people so that we don't sound like moralists, but we sound like we're really exciting and interesting. Thank you. I want to start asking you a question and then see what the panel Because I'm the old one. Think. Yeah. Because you're the guru. Um, is it fair to say that size has been somewhat addressed in terms of women's bodies and you've in fact been involved with the Dove campaign from very early on but that sexuality and looking attractive with dressing in a sexy way is still the big problem which is actually I don't see any dungarees here we're all of a generation now looking our very best all the time so how much of a problem is it going to be to tackle this question without saying women have to repudiate their very you know it's a really interesting question because in the early days of the second wave of feminism there was a uniform and I wasn't really good at conforming to it I never could do jeans I never felt they were comfortable uh, but also feminism again as Diane said was something also to do with defining or daring to be sexual. So, and the, I think there was a phase in which we took delight temporarily, we're able to take delight in our bodies. But isn't that part of what you're So, saying? exactly. You know, Jordan, that, that was her shtick for but a I long time. But I don't wasn't think it? that's the same. I think the commodification of the body is a very different argument than delight in the body. I don't think we've won the thing on size. And I certainly don't think we've won the thing on appearance at all. And I don't, so I think they're very, very linked. And from my perspective, I think you're over-optimistic on the size issue because I think almost everything to do with every aspect of the surface of women is, what can I say, is already informed. And there isn't even a uniform. In my day, there was a uniform of rebellion. There isn't quite a uniform of rebellion at the moment. But, Sasha, do you want a uniform of rebellion? I mean, would you like, as a consequence of this, you know, radical moment, actually, do you want women to dress differently because they can't achieve... They can all wear object T-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, I want to say a thing. Um, I think I think that the problem is that there's just a, a, by and large a monoculture of appearance, and you just need more choices. Not saying women shouldn't dress like this, or you know, some women will always want to dress how I would describe it, a bit slaggy. You know, you might, you just want to wear a short skirt and go out to a club, and that's just then wear the eyelashes, and that's fine if you're happy. If that's how you feel, you want to dress, that's great. But it's the monoculture of that and that being the look that's the problem. You just need to have more options. More 
more women wearing ridiculous things, more women in period costumes and making their own clothes and wearing hats that look like polar bears. Just, just a bit more choice. <laughs> do you agree? Like do I? Do you agree? <laughs> you obviously don't want to go out and look slaggy, but do you agree? I don't know. I have those moods. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's how you, yeah. Sometimes how you want to look. No, I mean, I think, I mean, I had a pair of dungarees and there are photographs of me in them lobbying members of parliament, would you believe? Um, but um, part of, very comfy they were too. Not so good if you need to go to the loo quickly. That's why as you get older, um, not so good. But um, what I was going to say is that there are slight cultural differences about attitudes to appearance, actually. They're not... They're not as big or as stable as they should be because of the kind of homogeny of Western culture and so on. But in Hackney, in Dawson on a sunny day, you can see girls strutting their stuff in short skirts and body riders and whatever else, about four times the size of those people in Vogue, and they feel good about it. And I don't think that's a bad thing. And actually, they, they do look slaggy, as it were. But to be fair to them, they're not looking slaggy for men. No, no. No, they're looking slaggy for themselves and they feel good, complete with the acrylic nails and the blonde hair extensions. If you live in Dawson long enough, you start to think that's the way to look. I remember one year, I, I had a sort of a blonde streaks put in my hair and I met one of my smarter black women friends. She said to me, Diane, that is not a good look. <laughs> but it's living in Dawson that does it to you. But <laughs> Sorry, I was just, but yeah. In Making terms yeah. that is problematic as an attitude because oh, you can't you can't say those that want to participate in the lap dancing club they're doing their thing for oh, no, themselves. No, no. I'm I mean, talking about participating in lap dancing clubs. I'm standing up for women wanting to wear what they want to wear. And one of the good things about being a woman, I've always thought, and I thought it even when I was a much more committed, well, not committed, but even when I was at the height of the feminist movement, that as a woman, you're allowed to adopt different personas day by day, which men can't do. They always tend to wear the suit. No, no, I'm not going to the laptop. I'm just, I'm just sort of standing up a little for people dressing as they want to dress, so long as they're not doing it just in response to pressure from the culture. Well, we're going to throw it open to the floor. I'm standing up slightly for the devil's advocate view, given that the panel unusually has sort of totally agreed with each other, uh, which is, are women trying to have it all here? I mean, is it having cake and eating it? We want to look fabulous and great, but nobody can accuse us of inciting violence against us. I, I think that question needs to be answered. Does anyone want to address that or a different one? Now, you have to say your, slightly your name, rank and serial number for... Posterity. Hello, I'm Rachel, I'm a journalist. Um, I think all this talk about um, owning our sexualities and our dress is all lovely and interesting, but the reason why we're here is about um, violence against women and rape and how porn links into that and the gender stereotypes... Sorry, I've got... <laughs> the gender stereotypes that porn promotes. You know, lad mags tell young boys it's cool to be violent and it tells young girls that um, it's cool to be passive and available and I think we need to focus on how porn and lad mags link into rape and male violence as opposed to um, going into too much about our dress and sexual lives. I think that's really important but the, the urgency is how, yeah, how it links into sexual violence and what, what our boys are being taught about young girls. Okay, thank you. A point at the front here and then one here. We'll take sort of two or three at a time, if that's all right. Say who you are. And... I, I'm Yolanda Bergen. Um, at the moment, I s 
I'm going to say who I am via a women's art collective called Chelsea Girls. I'm um, relatively unusual in, in that I was also in the first, well, not the first wave of feminism, because that was like for the second through the 60s and 70s, but I'm now at um, art college doing a BA, and I'm hanging out with a lot of 21-year-olds and with whom I've formed this art collective. And it's extremely interesting. So many of the points that were brought up about um, feminism being a word that no young woman now is prepared to take on, but there's a great rage, disconnect, anger, discomfort about everything that is going on. And I think that thing that Diane said earlier about hegemony or hegemony, however it's pronounced, I think that is the that is so important because not only it's the hegemony hegemony of um, patriarchy actually the thing we're not allowed to talk about anymore that should be is supposed to be so over we're supposed to have moved on so much from that but it's not only that things are the world is understood from the male perspective by men but by women too it's the internalizing of that worldview thank you one behind and then we'll come to the panel and then go back out to that direction. Uh, hello, I'm Melanie Willems. I'm a boring lawyer, I'm afraid. Um, I wanted to sort of put a more positive spin on it because I'm with Kathleen on the um, behaviour point. Our behaviour doesn't matter so much as what is considered to be an acceptable response to that behaviour. Now, you might think the judiciary in this country is pretty fuddy-duddy, but I had a rather um, chuckle to myself the other day with searching contempt of court. In 1994, in Crown against Powell, a man in the gallery in court, Wolf whistled at a lady juror. The judge called him down and slapped him in jail for 14 days. He appealed to the Court of Appeal, who upheld that, both that sentence and the length of time he had to spend in the slammer. The point I want to make is this. If in, frankly, one of the most patriarchal systems we have, the judiciary, if we can achieve that kind of just there is a time and a place for it kind of stance. Why can't we do this in the ordinary course of our daily lives? If it's not acceptable in court, it's not acceptable in the boardroom. And that goes, that's the starting point for addressing violence against women because it's laying down the standards of behavior that we think are acceptable. And that is not that difficult a task to do. If whoever, I don't know who it was, but I suspect it was a man who did this. Not all men are evil and they do understand this. It seems to me. Good point to raise, not all men are evil. Susie, you said wow at that point. You said wow. Do you want to come back on the points that have been made so far? I mean, the violence point, that it's, if it's cultural, it appears to suddenly become a soft question, not a heavy-duty question. But isn't the problem that it's interlaced? That well, I, 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 think, I think the problem that... I mean, I, I've said, said wow because it, it's such a lovely piece of work that... that that is hidden from me. I mean, I, I was alive in 1994. I don't know that. We didn't, that somehow wasn't out there in public space in a way that became a benchmark. And yet, obviously, it had affected the judiciary in an important way, probably because they'd been educated by a particular, or they're of a generation, actually. Probably. But no, I suppose I'm more concerned about the internal violence that women anticipate and do to themselves. It's not that I don't think there's male violence out there. I think it's very, very devastating. And I think it comes in, I think the roots of it are very complex. But what I think we have to focus on, or the women here need to focus on, is something that is much more tricky, 
which is to, our, is to engage with their own participation in this violence, whether it's women going to, to plastic surgeons all around, around the world to be cut up, or whether it's um, spending what they spend in transforming their bodies in one way or another, or whether it is producing a self-identity that it lo looks ballsy but is it, or tough, but it's at the same time all about compliance and shame. Those are the issues that I think are much more difficult for us to take on and that we have a responsibility for the next generation because I think where my generation failed is we said to our daughters, you can do everything, but we didn't underpin the difficulties for them. And then when feminism got taken away, they didn't have a place to talk about that about the issues that they were all facing. So everything got kind of knotted up in an, in an individual sense of failure, in an individual struggle. So I think we have to talk about, as we did in the olden days, why we feel the way we do and how we can support each other in, in ways to struggle against those internal forms of violence that we practice ourselves. Thank you. Over couple of points over in this direction. Claire, over there. My name is Claire Enders, um, and I also have a 20-year-old daughter who is, in fact, a self-described feminist doing anthropology. At, and uh, she looks utterly ravishing most days in uh, amazing clothes and wonderful makeup I only dreamed of wearing when I was her age. Anyway, so I don't think there's any inconsistency at all between being a feminist, as I am, and wearing whatever you feel like wearing. Uh, but I really want to pick up on Susie's point, which I think is very profound, which is the role of the porn industry, particularly online, in changing attitudes. I mean, uh, the U.S. porn industry is one of the biggest porn industries in the world and one of the biggest industries online. And the pervasiveness of the changes in the way that people portray themselves, the performance of privacy in public, is a pervasive and global issue. And nobody in this room is going to change that. So, and this is this is profound. It permeates all demographics. It started among. I mean, the internet's first use was pornography, um, and uh, uh, my company forecasts technology trends. So, you know, in case anybody's wondering what I what I do for a living, but um, it 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 rapidly became something that changed the way that people communicate and demonstrate themselves online, from people dancing naked in their bedrooms to very very young women. Uh, age seven now online because the demographics of online use have, have trended back towards 10 and back towards five. And we're looking at a phenomenon that affects 70% of households in the UK, 75% of households in the US, and you know, the numbers are countless. I mean, there's over a billion people online in the world today. So you know, this is a pervasive and global trend and it is manifested in every single form of communication that there is, but particularly YouTube and chat rooms and Facebook and all kinds of things. So that's why I want to applaud Object in picking a small but really important cause that is in your face in our daily lives. I mean, the virtual world is not something that we all have to experience. There are millions and millions of aspects to it, and we actually can opt out. And women can opt out, as men do, from, from, from being part of that. It's very hard to do. It takes a lot of power, personally, and I think that's really delivered by parents because ultimately this push towards this public performance of privacy, this absence of privacy, this absence of personal space is something that really disempowers everybody, both men and women, and both children of any gender. 
That's what I wanted to say. Okay, thank you. At the front here, so that kind of marginalising the albeit huge porn online industry is an interesting point. How, uh, yes. Definitely campaign for the future. Absolutely. The internet. Is, is, is the problem actually pornography? Is the problem actually watching people shagging? Or is it just what the pornography consists of? I mean, if, if teenagers were... I, I think far better than having a really agonised conversation with your parents about what sex is when you're sort of 14 or 15, I think watching some people having sex is actually a far better way to learn about it. It's just the fact that nearly all pornography out there is horrible and it's acting and cold and hateful and looks vile and is non-joyful and is non-expressive and you never see the women coming. And I, I personally, and I, I, I can imagine a lot of people here might not agree, but I, I think one of the things that might actually be quite useful, and I know there are a couple of people doing it, is for women to make more pornography that's really nice and is about female sexuality yeah. that looks fantastic um, and ju just again not this being this monoculture of what sexuality and pornography is but offering some more choice and making it fun and making it exciting so better porn Susie yes free range porn. well I, I think what's interesting is that part of what I do as a, as a psychotherapist is I see couples in therapy and one of the things that I noticed about five years ago it's, this is a very side point, but I think it's interesting, is that women who, who looked at porn were using it to learn something and to bring that back into their relationships with men or with women. And their experience, if they were in heterosexual relationships, was that men were using it for an entirely different purpose. Now, I don't think women are able to use it in that way anymore because I think it is so pervasive in the way that you've talked about. But I think that it was a very interesting thought is that women really, because sexuality and the erotic has become so visual rather than any other way to understand it, the fact that my daughter has to go to read Betty Dodson, look at Betty Dodson videos. I mean, Betty Dodson is probably older than me. And that is not really a place that you want to learn your sex from. I mean, you really want to learn that from much younger people. So I think you're on to something, that we have to set a very different standard for talking about what sexual engagement actually might look like and how much pleasure it could possibly be. Can I just say something on this porn thing, which is that I do understand the argument about better porn. I mean, one of the reasons I don't watch porn on the internet is because for women, most of it is really, you know, unstimulating and not very nice. But I do think we have to bear in mind that we're talking about children now, increasing numbers of children, who spend hours and hours unsupervised in their bedroom watching this stuff. It's, you know, I mean, and there is an issue about the saturation. There is an issue about unlimited access and hours and hours. And, uh, and you know, there are things that politicians could do. Some of, these, some of this porn stuff comes from overseas, and it could be blocked, um, but there isn't the will to do it. And just to move on quickly, one of the problems with young boys in particular, and to a lesser extent young girls, being saturated with porn from an early age, some of them, is the commodification of women. And somebody spoken about violence, and she was right to raise violence. There's an increasing problem in some communities of gang rape of young girls. Really horrible gang rapes, the like of which you didn't hear about when I was a child growing up in the inner city. And those type of gang rapes, and the idea you've got boys out there who think it's all right to do a gang rape, then pour acid on the girl, 
you know, afterwards. That is about the commodification of girls. And, you know, nice porn is one thing, but the way that young people can access porn and what it does to these young boys' attitudes to women is really very scary. And the final thing is about... In my experience, in the 90s, I set up an all-party on prostitution. And I took evidence from prostitutes all over the, the, the country, Scotland, Nottingham, London, Portsmouth, whatever, and spoke to communities and whatever. But my point is that when I tried to raise issues around prostitution with my colleagues, they tended to smirk. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a generation of male MP that just doesn't take these issues seriously. And that's something we have to look at in public life. Okay, over here. Sophie Gunter, um, the Stone Club. I'd like to pick up on something you've just said, Diane, and also make a comment, which is an old statement. The Jesuits say, give me the child till he's seven, I give you the man. Well, we've made that the woman in this case. Um, I actually got so pissed off with my local newsagent that Kit Kats were sold next to girl-on-girl action that I walked my local... I went to Nottingham Gate Police Station and walked my local... I borrowed a a constable and took him in to the newsagent um, and said, because the newsagent wouldn't move the magazines and got them moved. And I think that what happens on the internet is much more difficult to deal with, but I think the lads' mags culture is so pervasive that you can't, that you get your nuts with your nuts. And I think that's got to stop. Yeah, because actual porn is going to be on the top shelf. But I say, what's happened is that the boundaries have been shifting and stuff which would have been porn 20 years ago is now where your child goes to get their kick out. And the news agents get paid more for displaying it there. That's why they're reluctant to move it. That's what politicians could do something about. But isn't the problem that it's saying it isn't porn? That's the problem is that we have to surely make a distinction between what is the real stuff, whether or not it's good enough real stuff, but the stuff that is about sex, and the stuff that is now masquerading as cultural norm, which is not actually directly supposed to be about sex. Right place. I was watching MTV uh, last week, and if you start watching videos in, yeah, at the beginning of the 90s, women wear clothes. Women have got clothes on. Singers have clothes. They wear jackets. They wear hats. As you go through the 90s, their clothes disappear. You get to now, and no one's wearing any clothes. And it's having it in its right place. It's it's being polite again. It's not polite to have naked women. Doesn't understand. She doesn't understand what she loves music, and she loves music videos, and she watches it, and she says. Why do they? Why haven't they got any clothes on? Is the question. Now, some over here. Actually, the woman behind Yasmin, Alibi Brown, and then Yasmin. Yes, you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, hello, room. Almost no one can see me, um, but you can all hear me. I think. Um, my name's Rebecca, and I. Um, hello, Susie. <laughs> and I run a production, a feminist production hub, and other things. We do lots of stuff, but one of the things that I keep hearing everyone talking about that seems so relevant to almost everything everyone said so far is that we've taken advantage of the fact that um, the laws changed around teaching sex education and now you basic schools have to tackle it and they're terrified too so we've been taking workshops into schools about sex and relationships and one of those workshops is looking at porn and the teachers initially freak out because what we do is we take two sets of images one that are soft porn but we make it very clear these are only the sorts of images that the, all the girls and boys will see in their local news agents and the teachers say oh well, I don't think we can show them like, it's 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 in their face already so it's only what they can say at news agents and then they go oh all right and it's they're pretty shocked that's what they can see but then they go okay and the other set of images it's like women in their day-to-day life who aren't in that same uh, not in the same sort of poses really hard to find women i have to say for that other sheet but there are a few images of it and we basically just say to the girls, um, out of the kind of images of 
the jobs women do in the media, which ones are most helpful in your day-to-day -day life? Which ones help you and which ones do you think don't help you? And then they look at the pictures and they just go, well, I think this is really helpful. And they look at pictures of Michelle Obama or Jennifer Aniston before she did that nude cover of something and she was all feisty and she had her clothes on and stuff, or um, before Brad. <laughs> and, uh, and they look at pictures of women in soft porn positions and they go, that doesn't look helpful to me. So it's really interesting that the default position of every woman, and I'm talking about the girls in Hackney and Southwark and Bermondsey and stuff, is a feminist position. They can tell what's useful for them and what isn't. And then at the end, I mean, I'm wrapping up, I promise, and at the very end of that session, what we do is we leave about 15, 20 minutes for a completely frank, no-holes-barred Q&A with all the, work with the workshop leaders in little groups of young girls and boys where they can ask us anything about sex. And we are really open with them that sex is really, really lovely if you do it on your own terms and at your own pace. And we don't hold back from saying it's fantastic and this is what an orgasm is and blah, blah, blah. Whatever they ask us, we answer without shyness. And if we're not comfortable with ask, answering something, we'll say, that's a bit personal, but for you, blah, blah, whatever. And it makes it really clear that porn is one thing and sex is an enjoyable, fantastic, exciting, terrifying, marvelous thing that is completely different from the current mainstream porn industry. So I don't know, but that it seems to be going really well, that and is really useful. And I just wanted to sort of say that if you want the copy of that workshop to use in your schools, please take it. I'd love to hand it on. Well, we that in some ways is our first sort of action point. I mean, to the, you know, edu sex education, which is being done, can be uh, given a different perspective. Yasmin, when you make your comment, can you also answer the question we looked at at the beginning, which is what is your view about the fact that in the end, is porn culture limiting women achieving things in public life? I mean, it may still be... Well, it partly is what I'm going to talk about because there were two things. Uh, I, I think it's been fantastic. Um, the, the kind of unlikely alliance on the platform in the audience, really, I haven't been to such a cheerful event for a long time. Um, but there are a couple of things. The, 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 you see, I do think that we can't have it all. And I certainly think for our daughters, the message I have to give to my 16-year-old is how you dress. A lot of her friends dress in ways which gives a message about themselves. And I don't want necessarily for my daughter to think that's the message she wants. She has a pair of dungarees now. I didn't order them. She ordered them. Um, and you can't say, this is how I want to dress, without thinking about what message that is giving. And that's hard. But I think we do, this is a difficult area in a free society. And it's been very interesting. I've been talking to, because um, I'm as worried about a four-year-old in a hijab. I'm really worried about what's happening to girls on both sides of the spectrum. And the normalization, I mean, it's not just you know, in, on the billboards. It is respectable male commentators, some who might become editor, and I shall kill myself, um, <laughs> who, say, who say about Harriet Harman, our deputy prime minister, would you, even if you were drunk, give her one? Or there are things on respectable men's blogs, which I looked at before I left, about which famous... Per woman in public life would you fist? Now, if this is, and these are highly paid, highly respected male commentators who have normalized and who would laugh at me and call me a prudent worse. I think that's a really difficult issue and one we haven't talked about. So your point is also that public life, arguably male public life, is actually still... 
sordid. No, no, it's got worse. Being it's sordid and aggressive. There is a man, Ron Finlay, who wants to speak. God And then we're going back over here. We're going to... If you can kind of be brief, because everyone who wants to speak, I'm hoping we'll get through. Ron. Yeah, Ron Finlay from Fishburne Hedges. Um, I'd like to take issue with uh, Yasmin, but um, uh, say thank you to our lawyer friend, um, who said earlier that not all men are evil. And um, I, 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 when I arrived tonight, Julia said, oh, you welcome, you're one of our few token men. And I perhaps was naive, but I expected this audience to be half and half men and women, and yet here we are, over 90% women. And I feel that the, the issue which I wanted to raise was about the brand feminism, because I think that itself is, can be an alienating term to men. And yet, not all men are evil, and you are at risk, I think, of um, not taking advantage of a very large proportion of society who are male who would support this cause, as I would, and I'm sure a lot of the men here, most of the men here today, if not all, would, would do. So I think it's a question of looking at a, a new terminology, maybe it's equality, um, and then rally uh, right-thinking men to your side and don't make this just a female issue. Okay. Martin, yes. Do you believe a bit of a rebrand would? Yes. Because we especially we always welcome. In fact, our chairs are man. We've got a few male volunteers here. I totally understand what you're getting. I mean, we've been in meetings with MPs way back when, when Diane Abbott, as well, was fighting about lads mags, and the men there are saying, "Oh, I don't know if I should be here because I'm a man." It's like absolutely you should be here. Um, number one, it's men who have the power in our society to an overwhelming extent. We need you on board. Um, a big part of the violence against women strategies that I mentioned earlier, a big focus on that is on men and boys and their attitudes. The whole reason for the profound changes and the changes in the around prostitution is that it's tackling demand. Men, male usage of prostitutes. A lot of men, practically 80% of men use prostitutes. They're not the hardcore, nasty users. They'd be deterred if they'd been educated about it. They realised how abusive it was, if they were going to be fined for it or named and shamed. Recent research has shown this. So it's very much about getting men on board. A lot of good men out there, a lot of men who are open, okay. open to persuasion and challenging the bad attitudes that are male or patriarchal. Okay. I once said that 80% of news was PR-led and people went bonkers. Are you really saying 80% of men use prostitutes? No, 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 no. <laughs> Sorry, have I missed that? of the men who use prostitutes. Who use, thank you. Few. Just checking. Just checking. All getting very, you know... Um, Noivus. Justine Roberts of Mumsnet. Hi. We're having a big debate on Mumsnet at the moment about whether we should embark on a campaign which challenges retailers not to sell products which prematurely sexualise children. And one of the big arguments against it, and the majority are in favour, is actually retailers say to us, we only sell it because parents want to buy it. And I just wondered what your take on that was. I mean, I know what my take on it is, but I'd like to go back to my community with what the panel said as to why we should pursue this campaign when, in fact, you know, if there was no market, it wouldn't be happening. I hate the stuff myself, but I notice that generally the people who buy that kind of thing are people who feel under pressure and feel that their children need to grow up quickly because their lifestyles are such that they, they, it's actually advantageous to try and make your children as adult as soon as possible. But because w Are you pro or anti-censoring it and taking it off the shelves? 
God, I don't know. Because that actually... Yeah, you want to I kind of wish people didn't make it in the first place. I certainly don't want to buy it, and I certainly would hope people don't feel pressurised to do it, but I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll pretend high heels that bad for kids. I mean, all, you know... For babies they are. Well, yeah, no, walking-wise they are, but is, are, we talking about, are we talking about politics or just practically? Sorry, but absolutely go for it. I don't know if you know, but WH Smith has recently withdrawn all the Playboy bunny pencil cases to little eight and nine-year-old girls. It was totally aimed at them, whatever little, they said. Let's have a little vote here. Who thinks that kind of basically sexy toys that, you know, prematurely sexualised should be taken off the shelves? But then is that Barbies as well? I mean, is that remodelling Barbies? Is that well, leaving aside... All of it then, but then do all of it. No, but the what what you would define, what we're defining... Okay, Justine, give us the parameters before we vote again. What it means, means is products that are aimed at prepubescent children, so whether it's high heels for tots or, or even for, you know, eight-year-olds, boob tubes... Playboy, you know, right. no, um, the I, newer stuff. You know, I have Barbie's a whole different. You know, I'd love to do that one too. But I mean, let's take one step at a time. So the new crop, all right. And just to be clear again, who's for banning them? Julia didn't mention it, but at this stage, about ninety-five percent, if not more, of the hands in the room were raised in favour of banning. Kids have got clippy copy shoes that they buy for one ninety-nine that they walk. I mean, day to day, I wouldn't put my kids in high heels. But isn't this illustrating the point that we have to draw lines, and then as soon as we draw the lines, it's complicated. Now there's an object person there, and there's some. But beforehand, sorry, there's a woman here who's had her hand up from the beginning, who's also an objector. Hi, uh, yeah, um, my name's Sylvia. I'm I'm a stay-at-home mum at the moment, and I'm an object activist as well. Um, now. I think that, you know, I just want to bring it back to the fact that we're talking about the normalisation of porn. It's not necessarily about um, porn on the internet. It's the fact that porn is becoming more and more mainstreamed and normalised, and that's oppressive to me. I'm oppressed as I go around my daily business with this imagery that's telling me what to do. I can look in a, um, in a paper on my way home from work when I worked before, um, yeah, and, I, and I'd actually feel low. I'd feel down. And I wasn't asking for it. It would be put in my face. And so... Women are being oppressed by this, this um, atmosphere of sexualized imagery. And, and, it's, and it seems a bit unfair to say, well, is, should a woman be allowed to wear this or should she be allowed to wear that, when she hasn't even got the freedom to really make a proper choice while the, the pressure is so strong. So I think that we should really um, be th talking about this, this atmosphere, this, the, the fact that it's pushed in our faces all the time. We need to sort of fight back against this and get, get the sex industry put into sex shops not next to the, you know, buying your topic or whatever. And I also wanted to talk about, um, just briefly, about somebody saying not all men are bad. Of course they're not. You know, lots of us object activists have partners, male partners. There, there are men involved in it. And um, my husband, he's lovely, but um, he, he supports me. You know, he, he buys me stickers. He, you know, he does, he does it, like loads of stuff. So just because he's not here now doesn't mean that there aren't men involved in it. And, and so I sort of, I'm a little bit offended that somebody would assume that we, you know, we, we think all men are bastards, which is just not, not fair. And I, I think that... The, the, you know, violent and extreme and, and dull and horrible pornography is just as horrible for boys to watch as for girls to watch. You know, a nine-year-old boy is going to be scared and fucked up by watching something like that as a girl would be. 
I think a nine-year-old boy watching some horrible shaven girl on all fours or something, I think, is probably going to be as unhappy as a nine-year-old girl. All right, there's uh, ten more minutes. That's the bad news. The good news is there's more wine, thanks to <laughs> Policy Review TV, who've uh, sponsored this that bit of it. So, could we just have some really, really quick fire points? But what I'd like you to bear in mind when you make your comments, if you're selected, is can we tread a bit of a new path here, which is, A, what should be done about it? Uh, there are some policy makers in the audience. What should policy do? Where is feminism in all of this? Does feminism actually have a role in this anti-porn thing? Can you say you're anti-porn but you're not a feminist? So could some people address that and I'll be cross if they don't. So over here. Um, Sarah, I'm currently a digital press officer for Oxfam but I'm about to be head of comms at the Women's Resource Centre which will be dealing a lot with these issues. Um, my question is actually we've been talking a lot about I mean, I currently deal with all things digital at Oxfam in terms of media. My question is, we've been talking about the web a lot as a tool of oppression. How can we use the, harness the power of the internet to use it as a tool of liberation, celebration? I lived in America last year and watched young feminists harness the internet in a way that I've never seen before. They were galvanized, they were innovative, they were fantastic and incredibly inspiring. I think there's a similar groundswell looking around the room here at the age demographic and the kind of you know, vibrancy of who's here to really do that here. So what, what does the panel think about that? Okay, good point. What do the panel think? What, do you, what does Object think about the uh, power of the internet? Absolutely. I think, yeah, I think we're always made to think very negatively about the internet, about our entire culture, and you can't ever do anything about it. But absolutely, you have to use whatever tools you can and grab onto them. The internet's amazing. As you know, most women's groups are tiny. They have no resources. The internet, you look huge. You can get the activism going online, Twitter, Facebook... Yahoo groups, you can raise your profile, you get the money coming in. It's a fantastic tool. And getting information out there as well. Okay, Susie's going to agree. Do you want to say anything yeah, on that? I was going to say, I mean, the idea of you getting your Feminist Fridays out there every month and just having something happening in a kind of flash mobby way is going to be fun. It just makes it fun. Okay, what about is feminist... Does the anti-porn movement need feminism? Who is going to answer that question? Are you? Good. <laughs> I just, uh, my name is Catherine Angel. I'm a historian and writer based at the University of Warwick. Um, I think the work that Object does is very important, um, but I was interested in what Catelyn said about a kind of ethics of politeness and generosity. And what I find interesting is that in a lot of the discussions about pornography and feminism, there's actually a slight thread of aggression towards women and misogyny towards women, by definition, that runs throughout that. Um, I mean, I find it interesting that various panellists use the word slaggy. I would never use that word. <laughs> um, so my question for all the panellists really is how do we understand in a generous way, in a psychologically nuanced way, women's individual choices to work in the porn industry, to work in sex work, to use porn, to watch porn, to enjoy porn, and also to understand men's um, reasons for visiting prostitutes, all the complex desires, pleasures, and, and complexities of our lives that make us as individual people struggling to make very, very complex decisions in a complex world. Because the feminism that I aspire to is one that isn't run through with a certain kind of bile towards women themselves, because we don't really need that. Thank you. Susie, you're going to answer that. I take your point. Actually, the only word I can't bear to use is shag. I just find it a horrible word. Slaggy's not come up so much, but after tonight, maybe it will, maybe it shouldn't. Susie, about the language and about the context of it, what's your view? See, I, I, 
If what we're talking about is an anti-porn campaign, I'm actually have to. I'm now no longer on the panel because I don't. I don't like the normalisation of porn, but I'm not actually. I don't want to put my energy behind anti-porn. What I want to do is raise the kinds of questions about why is it so compelling and what is it that it means to us and what is it that the boundaries have shifted and the whole questions that have been raised. So I think that's, very, that's a very different way of phrasing it and I wouldn't be part of a campaign that... That isn't to say that I don't think objects work is fabulous, but I don't think it's what's going to bring me in because it doesn't have enough nuance Is it, it limiting then? Are you saying that it's almost no. distracting, limiting? No, it's not that it's limiting. It does not understand our own engagement with a hypersexualized but non-erotic culture in which the pornography industry operates for all sorts of different kinds of reasons, some of which are to do with longing, some of which are to do with violence, some of which are to do with the commercialization, some of which are to do with histories of sexual abuse and sexual violence that then get reenacted. So I, I don't want to collapse all of that into an anti-porn thing. It's not sophisticated enough. We need to be clever. We know far too much at this point. So um, I think I want to say that, that we, and I don't think that is your position either. Maybe it is, and, but whatever. Do you want to come back on that quickly? Then there's a bloke over there, and then there's a couple more hands, and then we're done officially. What, what I do think you say maybe the problem is here, we're not defining what we mean by porn. And to me, porn means something that's asexual and be degrading, and which and doesn't mean it's all porn that's out there, but it's the vast majority of porn is extremely degrading. Aren't we back but, in nuance, though? Some people find degrading things incredibly erotic. That, that might, is the truth. That's different. A lot of adults use porn, don't they? Okay. Use... I, yes, I think my point would be about the effect on young girls. I think, you know, that's where I think it's really difficult. I think if you're talking about adults, there's got to be a bit of freedom going on. I, I, I think it becomes difficult then. Mainstream porn, which is horrendously violent, it's double anals, it's gang bangs, it's, I won't go into the detail, that's mainstream porn. Okay, so men and women we need to, to, I mean, there's degrees of this, sir, over here at the back, and then sweeping this way, and then, you know what? I didn't put my hand up on the question of uh, banning uh, um, items in shops that sexualize small children, however unpleasant that might be because I feel very strongly that it is very difficult to define. It is very difficult to define porn, and uh, that the moment you start trying to do that, you are uh, uh, treading on extremely dangerous ground, and we've got enough cases of history over the last 50 years to know that. That we, as human beings, range from primitive societies where women and men dress in nothing more than a loincloth and are not regarded as sexual objects by each other simply because they're only wearing a loincloth to societies where piano legs had to be covered because they were regarded as erotic. We are all victims of our cultural norms of the time. We are all conditioned by the norms of our time. We cannot escape that. I'm sorry, that's a fact. Very briefly, what so, are you anti and what are you pro here? What I would say is that I think that, that feminism has moved the dial very, very significantly and gained huge freedoms for women as part of the increase in social freedoms uh, of which one of the consequences is more porn out there. But we can't define that. So my advice would be seek political power 
rather than seeking specific objectives relating to porn. Now, over here, the woman in green, wait for the microphone. Nobody's talked about which political power to be is better or worse on this subject. Bear that in mind in your... I shall be brief. Uh, very quick. My name's Kerry Goddard. I'm from the Fawcett Society. Um, I just wanted to... On the, on the subject of whether or not to, to ban porn, I think that um, we really support um, objects' work uh, to tackle porn or anything in the media or any kind of entertainment that I think reflects the situation in wider society that women as human beings are still not as valued and respected as men. So whether it's porn or media or anything else, that just reflects society. So I really welcome specific campaigns against porn, etc., if it indeed degrades women. But I also think, in terms of going forward, what we need to do is actually fundamentally change our society and our culture in a range of areas so that women and men as human beings are equally valued and treated with equal respect. And therefore, whether it's porn, whether it's entertainment, whether it's the media, whether it's an education, they will be represented and treated as such. And I think that is the way forward. Well, that is a good moment to come, I'm afraid, to closing remarks because there's a little rustle of restlessness here and we could, in fact, be here forever otherwise. So, Susie... What's your closing point? I think the longer I've listened to this discussion, the more that I want to divide. I don't want to call porn and sex the same thing. I might want to call porn violence, and I might want to call sex something we really don't yet understand. That's what, that's what I'd like to stop on. Thank you. Now, I'm going to come to you last, because you're... I was first. That's you fine. were first, and it's kind of all about raising awareness of objects so Catelyn oh, mine would just be very simple just just more politeness and more choice just more choice of things for women to be and more politeness in so people's acceptance of where we are yeah just generally just ask yourself is this polite and I think generally if you look at something and it's not then that's probably not a good idea and more choice for what we can be Sasha I'd like Sasha. to say thank you to everyone for coming here today fantastic questions and really thought-provoking. Thank you to Julia, who's been a fantastic source of support. Thank you for this, hosting this event, which has been fantastic. Thank you to everyone who's donated to Object as well. And if you'd like to find out more about us, there are a lot of people in T-shirts, and there are other people not in T-shirts. We're the, kind of the posh end of the market, I guess. We've got little badges on. Just talk to us, find out about what we're doing, how you can help, how you can support us. Well, this has been good. This has been great. Thank you all. continued out there. Thank you.